So we have made it to the end of the book of Job. So good job, you did it. If you've been with us this whole time, you have, you have endured the difficult book of, of Job. And, you know, so we've been walking through the tragedy that Job feels, the difficult questions that he has to ask, the challenges the book presents us with. And so what's left for us at the end of this, uh, this series is to put all the pieces of this book together to kind of understand what the big picture of the book is all about. So kind of as a recap, uh, the first chapters of Job is when Job loses everything. And then for the next about 34 chapters, him and his so-called friends uh, have this debate about how the world works. His friends all believe that if you're a good person, good things happen to you. And if you're a bad person, bad things happen to you. So clearly, Job must be a bad person for all these bad things to happen to him. And so they debate back and forth about this. And then after 34 chapters of that, there's four chapters of God responding to them and answering some of their questions and dealing with some of their incorrect thinking. And after all of that, we reach Job chapter 42, and that's where we'll be today. So you can turn to chapter 42 in your Bible. And chapter 42 is when Job responds to what God has said. And throughout the book, Job has been, you know, he's been asking and pleading and hoping that he could defend his case against the Lord, but he's pretty much assumed that's never going to happen. Like he's God. He doesn't, he doesn't have any need to come and talk to me. Who am I? And then he finally gets to hear from the Lord, and he surprisingly has very little to say in response. So here's what Job says in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is it that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the first question is, what does Job repent of? Because he doesn't specifically tell us. He doesn't say, I repent of this. He just says, I repent. Now, we can probably guess from the story that Job repents of the things that he has said and the things that he has thought about God. It's also possible he repents of maybe a little bit of a self-righteous attitude. He might also be repenting that he just imagined God was way too small. But he still has this sense that he has to repent when he finally hears from the Lord. And seeing God has that effect on us. It's a very normal response. In fact, uh, the prophet Isaiah, this happened to him as well. Seeing God will expose your wrong thinking about him. When you come face to face with God, when you are in his presence, you will realize all the things you did not understand about him and the things you misthought about him. You'll see God and you'll go, wow, I underestimated just how much you love me. You'll see God and realize, I completely misunderstood your sense of justice. A.W. Tozer famously said, whatever comes into your heart and mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. 
the most important thing about you. And that is so true. Because if fear comes into your heart, when you think about God, that means you're going to act towards God out of a sense of fear. That means you're most likely going to hide from him because you're afraid of him. If, if meh is the feeling that comes, that comes up when you think about God, then you're probably not going to really do anything. You might just go through the motions, but you're not really interested in going any deeper or committing to anything. If you think God is just waiting to smack you over the head, you're going to seek out a life of perfectionism. What you think about God is the most important thing about you, and that is so true. And in the book of Job, his so-called friends, they thought that they understood how the world worked. They thought they understood God and that God was stuck inside of their understanding of justice. But he's not, and he wasn't. And that at time led Job to think that maybe God was angry or God didn't have any pity towards him or God was out to get him. And so what we begin to see is that some things in Job are transformed by this encounter with God and going through this journey of suffering. You see, first off, his view of God is transformed. The way that he thinks about God changes. And I I just have to wonder if Job would have gone down this particular road of thinking if his, his frenemies hadn't said what they said. Because sure, at first, Job, he grieves this loss. It's incredibly painful for him. I mean, but he says at the end of chapter one, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed is the name of the Lord. So it almost makes me wonder if, if Job would have, would have grieved, and, and, but eventually he would have continued on. But he begins to think these things and wonder these things because his, his friends chime in right after he kind of grieves the loss. They start saying, well, now, Job, what'd you do? What did you do? And I wonder if his friends drove him to begin to question or think things that he wouldn't have gotten to on his own. It's kind of why they're, they're friends in quotes. Yeah, they're friends, but they kind of didn't really help him out. And so I just wonder if maybe Job was caught up in what others said about God, how they thought the world worked, and he just got stuck in it. And that's something that can happen to any of us, especially because we live in a world where there are so many voices, aren't there? You've got not just TV, you've got books, You've got the newspaper, you've got podcasts, you've got, you've got reels on the internet, you've got YouTube videos. There's so many things out there and information just changes so quickly. I mean, even, I mean, when I, I remember when I was in middle school and high school, if a video went viral, it was popular for a week or two. Now if something's viral, it's viral for maybe half of a day. Like it was the big video this morning and by lunchtime, some, some new TikTok has already taken over. Like things just change so fast. And there's a lot of voices out there that are, that are good voices and they're correct, but there's also some voices that aren't so good. And so we live in an age where what we need is critical thinking. We need to learn the skills of how to listen and understand what people are saying. Because even in, you know, kind of the Christian uh, internet influencer and TikTok space, there are some Christians that they say things like, oh yeah, that's, that's good. That's a good way to put it. That's right. And there are others that are not orthodox, they don't teach good things. But then there's others in the middle. They're well-meaning Christians, and maybe they're just a little misunderstood, or they just didn't say it quite clearly enough or the right way. And that's why we just need 
critical thinking. We need to take what these people are saying and bring it into our relationship with God. You know, I love in the book of Acts, Paul visits a city called Berea, and there's just this quick little, little note about the Bereans. It says, every night when Paul finished preaching, they would go back home and they would study the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. And that's just a good practice for all of us to have. When we hear something or we read something, not just go, well, that must be true because it's in a book. Or, well, somebody put that in a, in a video. It must be true. Instead, take that content and go, well, what, is, what did the scripture say? Does that line up? Does that make sense of who God is? Does that fit together? And we all need that. And here's what's so important about this. Someone else's relationship with God is not a substitute for your relationship with God. Someone else's relationship with God is not a substitute for your relationship with God. And I find it interesting that Job even, he says, he says I, my ears have heard of you, but now I've seen you. That's really interesting to me. I wonder if in a sense he, he maybe means his friends, they talked about God, but not in the right way. But I also find it interesting that the story does not say that God physically appeared. Like, it's not quite like Moses. Like, the text of Exodus says, Moses saw the Lord. It doesn't really say that. It says in, in chapter 38, it says the Lord spoke to Job out of the whirlwind. And so Job poetically equates hearing clearly from God with seeing God. He says, I've seen God because I've heard directly from him. I've heard from the source. So now I clearly understand him. And so listen, it's great to hear about God from others. But at some point, you need to hear from God yourself. And the great news is God provides us a way to do that because he's given us the word and he's also given us his Holy Spirit so that with a relationship with Jesus, you can actually hear from God. He can help unpack what his mission and his will is not this hidden mystery because he tells you in the Bible what he wants you to do. We've got our marching orders right here. If you want to know what God is like, it's in here. He tells you. And so Job's thinking has changed, but also his relationship with God has changed because he now says, I've seen you. I've seen you because I clearly heard you set the record straight. And Job's response is very similar to how others respond. You know, in the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, he's caught up in a vision and he sees God in his throne room. And the first thing Isaiah says is, I'm not worthy to be here. And he's like, woe is me. I have unclean lips. I can't do this. And he collapses. And that's what happens with Job. Job hears clearly from the Lord and then he is disgusted. Because immediately he realizes the things that he's thought and some of what he has said is so untrue about God that he can't help but just feel awful about it, and he has to repent. And that's normal for any of us, too. When we come into God's presence, when we clearly see God, we can't help but recognize our own sin. We can't help but just have that just immediately be brought out in us. And we can't help but say, man, I've got to repent of this. I was not acting the right way. I was not thinking the right way. This is not correct. And these elements that Job went through are, are similar for all of us. Because when you see God clearer, your relationship with him gets stronger. Your view of him is solidified. You go deeper with God than you had before. And in that process, your sin is revealed so that you can be 
refined. Because there are things in us that God wants to get out of us. So after Job responds, here's how the narrator closes the book of Job. He says, after the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told him. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So I just have to stop at that point and go, wait a second. Job spoke truthfully about God? Hold on. Job just repented a little bit ago. And Job said some pretty terrible things. You remember? Like he's like, man, God must have just a grudge. He must just be out to get me. God has no mercy. God has no sense of justice because he's so busy punishing me that he's not dealing with the people who need to be punished. He said some things that were not so good about God. But here's the difference between Job and his friends. Job's friends talked about God. Job talked to God. It's a big difference. Job talked to God while his friends just talked about him. see, what we learned is God says, Job's spoken truthfully about me because he brought his problems to me. He complained to me. God's a big boy. He can handle it. You can say, God, I don't, I don't like this. I think you're being unfair. I think you're being a little too angry. I think whatever. He can handle it. You can ask your questions. You can take your horrible feelings. You can take whatever it is to the Lord, and he's fine with it. He will listen to it. He will hear what you have to say. But here's what Job did. Job never stopped praying. Job never stopped praying in this book. And for any of us, when we are suffering, and we're, when our life is difficult, and when we're in pain, what we need to do is don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Because the answer isn't to turn away from God. The answer is not to say, well, I don't think I'm supposed to feel that way about God. You know, maybe you grew up in, grew up in a situation where we don't talk about our feelings. You know, you don't, don't cry. Don't, we don't talk about it. And so you just feel like, well, I can't, I can't take that to God. But you can. You can take those feelings to God. He gave them to you for a reason. They're there to help indicate what's going on inside of you. And so the answer is not to turn away from God and say, well, I can't talk to him about this, or he's just being unfair, so I'm just going to ignore him. But the other hand, the answer is not to just assume, well, you know how things work. And you've got this all figured out. Instead, the answer is to go to the Lord. Tell him what's going on. Ask him your questions. Share with him your doubts. And he will help you get through it. You will grow. He will change you in that process. And prayer is not just about, you know, hey, God, help me with this. Help this person. Prayer is talking with God. It's sharing your thoughts and your feelings with him. It can sometimes just be sitting quietly and actually saying nothing at all and just being in the presence of the Lord or just being open to listening to what he has to say or taking a, a verse in scripture and just thinking about it or a characteristic of God and just thinking about what he's like. And so Job never stops praying. Then we get this little conclusion to the whole book. 
After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep. Some of you farmers take notes. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. Pretty big farm, right? Pretty good. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the, how would you like this for your name? And the third, Karen Hapuk. There you go. I don't know. Hebrew name. There you go. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. So if you were to compare chapter 1 with chapter 42, God really does double it. We're given the number of everything Job had in chapter 1, and in chapter 42, God gives him exactly double of it. In fact, a lot of scholars think he also doubled Job's lifetime because Moses writes that, you know, he kind of, he says that, you know, you may give a man 70 years, maybe 80. And so the assumption is, well, if you get 70 years and he got 140, God even doubled his own lifespan. So Job gets double and that's, you know, that's, that's a nice ending. That's great. Except for one little, one little hangout. So if your kids died tragically, does having new kids completely make up for the loss of your first kids? Not really. I mean, yes, it's great and wonderful to have more children, but I mean, the financial side, that makes a little more sense. Like, okay, just double the, double the money, double the livestock. That's a little more understandable. But, but Job still lost his kids. And it's great that he has more kids, but he still lost his kids. So what is, what is going on here? So let's, let's go back to the first two chapters of Job. Because we got to go back to this. Satan approaches God with this question. Does Job serve God for nothing? You see, the whole book of Job is, Job is kind of like a trial. Satan has this, this theory, this question. And the question is, does any, he's like, God, humans only serve you because you bless them. If you stopped blessing them, they would not follow you anymore. That's his whole theory. Humans don't really love you, God. They don't really worship you. It's just because you give them what they want. And they're just using you to get what they want. And so God says, okay, let's, let's put your theory to the test. Why don't you try it out on my servant Job? And so we get to the end of the book and we discover that even though Job questions God, he complains about God, he has doubts, he gets depressed, he gets angry, he, the one thing he never does is he never rejects God. There's even a couple places where he maybe, he kicks around the idea in his head of like, is it worth it to be good like this and to try to follow the Lord if I'm not getting certain things? And he decides no, it's still worth it. I'm still going to follow God no matter what. And so the end of the letter proves that Satan was not right. There really are people who will serve God for nothing. And Job is one of those people. He will follow God regardless of what the outcome is. And so the conclusion just takes us right back to that first question. Does Job serve God for nothing? 
And so the story then presents us with the exact same question. Do you serve God for nothing? I'll switch the question up to, so you can ask it to yourself personally. Why do you serve God? Why don't you think about that for just a minute? Why do you serve God? This is the question that is at the heart of the book of Job. Why does anybody serve God? And, you know, you can maybe think of some different reasons that you serve God. And, and there are pure motives that we have for serving God. And if we're really honest, there's some selfish ones in there, aren't there? There's maybe a little bit of, well, if I'm really being honest deep, deep down, I'm kind of serving God because it makes me look good. Or I'm kind of serving God because I think it makes my life a little better. Or I'm really serving God because I kind of expect he's going to do certain things for me. So I want to show you this picture of an iceberg because life is a lot like an iceberg. There's a, you only see the top part of the iceberg, but that's actually usually the smallest piece of the iceberg. What's under the ocean that you cannot see is the biggest part of the iceberg. And in our lives, there's a little bit that we can all see. But there's actually so much more going on under the surface that we are not always aware of and we do not recognize. And that can be true for our motivations about following the Lord. Is at the top, you may just think very easily, well, this is, I serve God for this reason. That's a good reason. But the reality is, below the surface of your heart, deeper down, there's actually some motivations in there that are not good. And you actually have some expectations of God that are not great. And it's hard for those to be dug up. So I'm going to give you two questions to help you dig. The first question is, when does God frustrate me? When does God frustrate me? So, you know, when you're reading scripture and God does something, you go, God, why'd you have to do it like that? That's weird. I don't like that. Or maybe when you pray a certain way, when does God frustrate me? When does he frustrate me? And then here's the follow-up question. So think about that. And then ask yourself, why does that frustrate me? There's a really good chance when you get frustrated with God and the reason you are frustrated with him is an indication of why you're actually serving him. For example, let's say you're frustrated when God doesn't answer your prayers. Well, maybe the, the, the deep truth is you expect God to answer your prayers a certain way in a certain time frame. And so if you think about that a little more and you start to dig, you realize, I'm expecting God to do something. Well, why do I expect him to do that? So, you know, parents, think about it this way. If, you, you know, parents, if you're, paying for your, if you're praying for your kid's future spouse, you're not frustrated at all if, as a 10-year-old, they don't have a suitable spouse lined up, right? You're not worried about that. You're not frustrated because you're expecting God to answer that prayer when they turn, like, 40, maybe 60, right? So you'll be fine. But let's say that you're like, come on, are they going to find somebody yet? And nobody seems to be showing up or they bring home their first, you know, uh, their first boyfriend or girlfriend from college, and you're like, this kid is a jerk. My daughter is better than this, you know, and you're just thinking, God, I prayed. I prayed for 21 years, and this is the person they bring home? Then you'd get frustrated because you expect God to act a certain way or do something a certain way, or you expect you're really in charge and he'll do what you say. Or maybe let's say you're frustrated with God because your life isn't as successful as you wanted. Like when you were younger and you thought about this point in your life, you would think, this is the kind of job, this is going to be my income, this is going to be my house, this is what my family will look like, this is how I'll be viewed in the community. And you look around and you don't have all of those things. 
But you see other people have them, and you wonder, God, what gives? Do you not really care about me? Do you not really love me? Am I not doing enough good for you? What's going on? And it might be that your motivation is you're really following God because you're expecting him to make you really successful. Like you're expecting him to bless you. You're expecting him to do certain things for you. And so those two questions will help you dig deeper below the surface of why you might actually be serving God. And those things come out. They come out in layers. It takes time. That's why we have to have a lifetime of growing up in Jesus because it takes time for these things to come to the surface and to deal with them. So there are two approaches that I want you to think about, two approaches that are often used in America to try to get people to follow Jesus. Okay, that's kind of two, two typical approaches. Um, the first approach is fear. Okay, the first approach is fear. And some of you, maybe you grew up in a church kind of like this, where this is a church where typically every sermon, doesn't matter what the passage is about, doesn't matter what the topic is, somehow the sermon gets, gets back to hell. And you kind of think, well, the Bible talks a lot about hell. Well, yes and no. There are some passages that surprisingly don't talk about hell. And so you think, well, you know, and maybe sometimes that was a little dramatic and a little hard nose, like, well, you better repent because you're just an awful, terrible person and, and, you, you're, and hell's described as this terrible place, which it is, and you're really afraid. You're like, well, I better follow Jesus because I don't want to go there. And those churches tend to also be pretty legalistic because it's all about fear. And you've probably heard a lot of do not, do not, do not, do not, do not, because it's all about fear. Because we don't, you don't, you don't want to be on the other end of God's wrath. And so that's what you heard. Now, is hell real? Absolutely. Is hell a terrible place? You bet. Does God want us to not go there? Yeah, he desires us to not go there. And does the Bible talk about God's wrath and his judgment? Absolutely. All that is true. Now, here's the second approach. The second approach is to offer a solution. And this one's a little more popular today because it's a little easier to use this one when the culture at large doesn't really know a lot about the Bible anymore like they used to. So this approach is a little more like uh, you take a common problem that people face and you try to connect Jesus as the answer. So this is a little more like you might see more topical sermons or, hey, let's do a series on marriage, let's do a series on money, let's do a series on this and this. And you, you point out how Jesus can save your marriage or how Jesus can help with your finances or how Jesus can help with your anxiety or whatever it is. And it focuses on the hope of Jesus and how your life can get better when you follow him and trust in him. But when this model is taken too far, you don't hear a lot about your sin. And people can feel like, sin's not that big a deal. Jesus is just my buddy. He loves me. It's like, well, yeah, he loves you. But you also need to repent of your sin, right? And so it can be taken a little too far and can even can make people feel like we just always need to be positive. We always have to smile. We can never have a bad day. We can never, you know, it can kind of go too far and go that way. Now, does Jesus offer hope? Absolutely he does. Can Jesus make our lives better? Yeah, he sure can. He can also mess up your life too in some pretty incredible ways. Does the Bible talk about how Jesus is the answer to many of our problems? Yeah. You read Ephesians, Paul says the answer to your marriage is Jesus, right? The issue is the churches tend to focus on one or the other. You tend to get too much of one and not enough of the other. That tends to be what happens. And the reality is we need both. And I think the way you get there is you just honestly follow whatever the passage that we're in in the morning has to talk about. So some passages, they'll get you there. They'll get you to hell and sin and repentance and judgment and wrath and all of that. And other times, it's the hope. 
It's hope of, hey, Jesus is the answer for your anxiety or your depression or whatever it is. And what's so interesting about the book of Job is it does a little bit of both. It actually offers a third option. See, the reason these, these two methods are so popular is because, I mean, think about it, we need a little convincing to do things, sometimes a lot of convincing. And the two main ways to convince you to do something is, I either need to scare you or I need to give you a lot of hope. So let's just think about commercials for a minute. What does every commercial do? One of two things. They either make you really scared of what would happen if you don't have our product. Like, oh my, if you don't have our product, your kitchen will be a mess. Your carpets will always be stained. Like, even if it's a silly fear, they play on a fear. Like, you need this product because your life without it is going to be awful. You don't want to be in this situation where you're on the side of the road and you have a flat tire and you don't have our battery-powered automatic tire inflator, right? Like, that's the fear. Or it's hope. It's like, man, you know what, guys? You're out working really hard all day and you've got that pickup truck and you know what? Wouldn't it, you know what would make your life so much better? If your pickup truck, if the back tailgate folded down to be an extra step or if it swung open so you could easily step, you know what? We got you. We have a brand new pickup truck this year that has all of those features, right? It's one or the other. And so we kind of do the same thing sometimes with Christianity. We say, well, let's get you really scared or let's give you all the hope. But here's what's so interesting about the book of Job. Is the question is, do you serve God for nothing? Which means at some point, you don't serve God because you're afraid of punishment and you feel really guilty and bad about yourself but you also don't follow God because you're expecting blessing or you're expecting him to make things better. You just follow him just because. Just because he's God. Just because he's the creator of the universe. Just because he's good enough and just enough and righteous enough that he is worth following. He is worth submitting your entire life to and sacrificing for. So let me put it this way. Uh, let's, let's use the example of reading your Bible. Sometimes you might start reading your Bible more because you feel really guilty, because you really haven't been, and you feel really bad about it, and you're like, man, I'm not giving God the attention or the time I need. I need to read my Bible more. And sometimes, yeah, that's, that's right. Like, we do feel convicted because, yeah, I haven't given God the attention I need. So you read the Bible because you, you feel kind of guilty about it. You feel convicted. Other times you read the Bible because you need a nugget. You need some encouraging lesson, some insight, and you're reading hoping that, there's going to be something in there that just sticks out and just means so much to you in the season of life you're in. And both of those things are fine. Those things are good. But there should come a point when you grow up in Christ and in your relationship with Jesus, you read this not because you're guilty, not because you feel bad about it, and not because you need some really inspiring word just that moment. You just read this because. Like you get to the point where you don't need the motivation either way. You just, you just want to spend time with Jesus. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be this really convicting, challenging time. It also doesn't have to be this really restful, encouraging time. It can just be. You can just be there with Jesus, and it's okay. And sure, he can challenge you, and that's great. And he can encourage you, and that's great. But he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. So the question becomes, why do you serve God? So if this story were about you, would you prove Satan right or would you prove him wrong? If this was about you. If Satan went up to heaven and said, hey, consider that person. Did they, serve, did they really serve you for nothing, God? 
What would God have to say about that? Would he say, yeah, go ahead, try him? Or would he say, uh, actually, don't, don't. Let me took it, turn your attention over to this person. This person's a better example. Would you at the end prove Satan right or wrong, that you really can follow Jesus for nothing? And what's incredible, is this is how Jesus followed God himself. See, the whole Bible can be summed up in four stages. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so the book of Job teaches us primarily about the fall. That because of our sinful state, we suffer whether we deserve it or not. And because of that sinfulness, we also don't totally understand what God is doing with the suffering. We don't quite have the right perspective around it. And so the temptation is to run away from God. And Satan has no shortage of lies to feed you about why God should be helping you and he's not, or he doesn't care about you, or whatever. He's got all kinds of lies to try to feed it to you. But then here's what Jesus did. Jesus willingly suffered. Like, nobody had to twist Jesus' arm. God did not have to create the right circumstances to put him in there. He just said, I'll do it. And in fact, Jesus didn't complain about it. It's another crazy thing. He prayed all night the night before in the Garden of Gethsemane and like, God, if there's another way, can we do that? And God said, there is no other way. He said, okay, I'll do it. I'm taking it. And then when he was up on the cross, we have seven things that Jesus said on the cross and none of them are complaints. In fact, the times that he could complain, the times we would all totally understand if even Jesus complained a little bit, like when the crowds are mocking him and making fun of him and his response is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That, I mean, if any time, that would be the time to be like, oh my gosh, these good for nothing people. But he doesn't. He says, forgive them. They don't know what's going on. And because of what Jesus did, the whole New Testament looks at the suffering of Jesus and rewrites the book on suffering. And actually says, suffering can be a good thing. And when we suffer like Jesus, God can do incredible things through that suffering. Jesus changed everything. And so Job's life reveals to us that we really can serve God for nothing. You can really mature and grow to the point where you can serve God for nothing just because of who he is. So when you're suffering, here's what you do. Here's what you do from the book of Job. You don't stop praying. You just don't. You keep talking to him about it. You keep wrestling with him about it. Don't abandon God. Don't believe any sort of lie that he, he's not really there. He doesn't really care. He's not really trying. Continue to seek him. Every day, just keep putting one foot in front of the other, because I know it can be hard. But just put one foot in front of the other. Keep coming to church. Keep reading the Bible. Keep having a few close friends that you can talk with, who can help you, who you can give your questions and your concerns with, people who can support you and help you, and eventually you will see God clearer than you do without the suffering. Eventually, you will reach a place of relationship with him that is deeper than where you are without the suffering. You will get there. Job got there. It just takes a while. So just keep going. Dear Father, we trust in you. And we ask for your help for all of us who are just struggling right now, Father. 
we ask that you would give us the comfort of your Holy Spirit, that you would continue to encourage us and strengthen us. Help us as a church family to come alongside one another when times are really difficult. Help us to continue to speak truth and life from your word to our brothers and sisters. And Jesus, help all of us to see it to the end of that suffering. Help us to trust in you and even know that that if things aren't fixed on this side of eternity, we know you will fix them when we get to finally go home and be in your presence. Jesus, we love you and we're so thankful for your example on earth, your death on the cross that frees us from our sin and our guilt and our shame and the hope that you give us that things can and will get better through you and that we have a home in eternity with you because of what you were willing to do for us. It's in the name of King Jesus, I pray, amen. So you can stay standing. So we're gonna close in a time of worship and here's what we're gonna do. Um, I challenged Taylor uh, to write uh, a little bit of music based on the book of Job. So I challenged him to write just a chorus, just a few lines to help us remember the book of Job. And so he's, he's been working for the past few weeks and, and he's got something prepared. So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna close and Taylor's gonna teach us just something simple and memorable to help us remember uh, the book of Job and the message of it. Never lose me from your hand 
hold these doubts through deepest night until my faith becomes my sight. Oh, hallelujah, even still, though I may not know your will, when the tempter bids me hard, let me see within the storm, let me see within the storm. Lord, help us. Um, help us in our weakness. Uh, help us to know that you are strong and that you are true and you are eternal. And when we cannot see the way and when, uh, when your face is, is veiled to us and we are worn thin, I'll still be there to guide us. Until we, until we see the end of the struggle or until we see you face to face. We ask this in Christ. Amen.